0: This episode contains subject matter and language some might find offensive or inappropriate for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. On the study of resistance, there is perhaps no greater event with the collection of pivotal examples of resistors rising up than the Holocaust. From the span of 1941 to 1943, over a hundred uprisings and resistance movements grew out of the numerous Jewish ghettos and concentration camps in Nazi-occupied territory. One of the most notable and deadliest of these resistance efforts was the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. In April 1943, underground Jewish resistance groups banded together to fight against the mass deportations to the Treblinka killing center and the eventual murder of over 400,000 Jews. What ensued was guerrilla warfare from the Jewish resistors, using old bombed out buildings and tunnels as an element of surprise, pistols and homemade bombs were used as weapons of choice, although there were several instances of hand-to-hand combat. The ferocity and passion displayed in the Warsaw Uprising is an obvious example of a group resisting their oppressor. But is violence in the form of warfare the only way to resist? Take a moment and think over the word itself What images come to mind for resistance? For me, instead of images, more words are immediately associated. Words like repel and pushback. For others, resistance might be more of a passive event, not necessarily directly engaging with one another. To better understand what actions represent resistance and what actions might fall into another category, such as passivity or compliance, it's crucial to observe and define common components that set resistance apart. In his essay titled The Concept of Resistance Jewish Resistance During the Holocaust, Professor of Philosophy Roger S. Gottlieb highlights three crucial parts of what might be considered a resistant event. For there to be resistance, there must first be something to resist against. Gottlieb states that resistance is typically the act of an already conquered or defeated people. Meaning in any given scenario or event, there is an inherent control that has been employed from one group to another. Within the power struggle that exists between the two, the second signifier for resistance is the intention of the oppressed to thwart, limit, or end the exercise of power that has created the struggle in the first place. The intention of the oppressed to thwart, limit, or end the power of the oppressor does not inherently involve violence, but it most certainly can. Lastly, and most importantly, resistors must hold at least two sorts of beliefs. The first of these two beliefs addresses the identity of the oppressed. These beliefs are what we would consider the crucial parts of what is unique to the resistors group. Gottlieb notes that these beliefs are essential to the oppressed, recognizing that a part of themselves can be threatened, dominated, or destroyed in the relationship of oppression. Secondly, the oppressed must have beliefs concerning the manner in which the oppressing group is exercising its domination about how the assault on their identity is being conducted. While the violent events of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising can easily be categorized as an act of resistance, using Gottlieb's three guiding principles, we can see how the actions of God Beck, his family, and his underground connections also possess all three parts of a resistant event. And as the continuation of the war posed greater and greater threats to the Jewish and Mischling populations of Berlin, they would be met with riskier and more dangerous showcases of resistance. While some of these acts of resistance would lead to liberation and freedom Many acts of resistance, as well as the network of the underground connections themselves, would begin to fall apart in the closing months of the war. And not even the bright and sunny disposition of Godbeck would be able to outrun the gnashing teeth of the German war machine or the Soviet Union's encroaching Red Army. I'm Caleb Franklin, and this is Root & Branch, Gay Survival in Holocaust. As the war continued, raging in places such as Zettel, Poland, Alsace, France, and Stalingrad of the former Soviet Union, Godbeck, his family, and his close friends within the Zionist youth movement soon began to feel the ever-mounting force of the Allied powers, disturbing what little bit of normalcy the group had managed to create in Berlin, both above and below ground. And with each passing moment, a collective sense of normalcy seemed further and further out of reach, a distant memory almost lost completely. What had initially begun as an effort to keep only themselves and their families safe had now spurred resistance efforts similar to dramatic plots and spy films. In June of 1943, God's friend Ewol had been taken into custody by the Gestapo, eventually leading her through 17 camps and prisons until the conclusion of the war. Zui's good friend Poldy had also been identified and picked up by the Gestapo. He would endure four weeks of consistent, cruel torture, yet he held himself together and never shared a single name or location. Unfortunately, this act of solidarity would cost Poldi the same price as Manfred and his family. He would be deported and murdered behind the gates of Auschwitz-Birkenau. Even God's closest confidant, the 16-year-old Zui, would be pursued and ensnared a new form of cunning deception, a kind that would use the very thing the Chug Toulouse fought day in and day out to protect, Jewishness. Known as Jew-snatchers, these individuals would, either by force or by choice, collaborate with members of the German Gestapo to set traps. Leading groups of Jews into trusting them, only for that trust to give way to arrest, or in some cases, immediate death. Stella Goldschlag, a notorious Jew snatcher, and her henchman, Rolf Isaacon, were behind both the apprehension of Poldy and Zui. The sinister pair were forced collaborators turned merciless perpetrators. And this would not be their final time to play predators to other Jews. Luckily, amongst the breaking down of their underground communication network and the deportation and death of crucial confidants, there were glimmers of success that would momentarily revive and sustain them as well as remind them that there was still work to be done. Zui was able to escape the clutches of the Gestapo to eventually reunite with God, cementing their bond even further and on a deeper level. In early 1944, Yitzhak successfully escaped to Switzerland to unite with another pivotal member of the complicated underground network. Nathan Schwalb. Schwalb was a representative of the World Center of the Hekeluz Movement in Geneva, Switzerland during the Second World War, and had been working with the Swiss Embassy to help Zionist Jews, still within Germany, acquire This meeting between the two monumental figures brought about equally momentous planning, resources, and information to the chug Chaluzi to assist those in need on a much wider scale. Since Yitzhak had intimate relationships with all members of the Chug, there were higher levels of confidence for large sums of money or elaborate letters and care packages to be sent between the countries. But there would need to be a permanent courier to whom the care packages could be sent consistently. After several attempts at finding a suitable fit for the job, the responsibility would fall to the Beck family, namely God, as well as the Lowenstein family. Like the Beck family, the Lowensteins were categorized as a mixed family, with one half being Christian and one half being Jewish. Just as many of the connections formed during this time for God, the Loewenstein family would become extremely important to not only the Zionist cause, but also a humanitarian cause of helping those facing persecution from the Third Reich, whatever their reasoning. The father, Fritz Loewenstein would become, as God says, his minister of finance. Fritz and his wife found unsuspecting places where to hide the multiple large influxes of money, which they were now getting steadily every couple weeks. And though Fritz Lowenstein and his wife would play a purely business-like role, their son, Hans Oscar would become an intimate partner and love interest for God, although Zwi was always God's mainstay. The grinding gears of the underground chug Chaluzi would soon transform into a well-oiled machine, employing the help of both those seen and unseen. Soon God would be dealing with special agents from foreign countries, transferring pigskin briefcases stacked high with currency, and take daily meetings with unknown entities that seemingly possess power enough to slip in and back over the heavily secured German border. Along with dealings of money and distribution of supplies, God and the Chugtuluzi would also be taxed with having to locate family members of refugees who had successfully fled to Switzerland, which on the surface appears to be one of the easier tasks set before him. But just as God and his partners within the Chug most of these relatives were in hiding, stowed away in secrecy, and if they had taken proper precautions, would not be found. This fact, coupled with the detrimental bombings in and around Berlin from the Allied Powers, meant that even if the underground group had been given solid directions to follow, there would be no guarantee that a home or even a building would be standing when they arrived. Although the work was difficult, God had a personal reason to approach this issue with exemplary optimism. It wasn't just his life or that of his families that was on the line. It was the existence of the entire global Jewish collective. With the Nazi news constantly tightening around him and those he loved, God penned in his memoir. It was only due to this far-reaching network of friends, acquaintances, helpers, suppliers, hiding places, and contracts that I was able to withstand the psychological pressures connected with living illegally. And although the shadowy network of communication and underground mechanisms would begin to break down, eventually beyond repair, and the violence of the German war machine would show no mercy. Fortunately, God's old flirtation with fate would work to his advantage in more ways than one. Trouble began first in the spring of 1944 with a slightly paranoid and hateful Nazi neighbor of the Becks. After throwing newspaper-wrapped piles of shit through their windows, on which she would write messages like Jew Whore, Hedwig Beck had reached her breaking point. One afternoon, as she began ascending the stairs to their partially bombed-out apartment building, Hedwig was again accosted by the woman, but this time would be for the last time. As she spewed her vitriol, Hedwig wrapped her hands around a newly purchased can of milk, pulled it from her sack and slammed it over the woman's head. And to make certain the harassment stopped, she then launched the woman down the staircase After her lapse in judgment, Hedwig bolted up to the family apartment and waited for God's father to return home. God states in his memoir, even today, their decision is hard to comprehend. His mother and father decided that they would save the Gestapo the trouble and they would voluntarily turn themselves in. Things then began to happen in rapid succession. Heinrich and Hedwig were both taken to an assembly holding camp, where Hedwig would stay. But unfortunately, Heinrich would face the brunt of punishment. Since he was considered a full Jew, he would be deported to Sachsenhausen Concentration Camp. Upon the news of their imprisonment and his father's deportation, God scoured his mind for any possible solution. And that solution came in the form of a former police officer and a former neighbor of the Becks who had always been friendly towards the family. God found the man walking down the street outside of his home and inconspicuously pleaded for help. After admitting there was not much he could do, he faced God slightly trembling and said, I'll try something. Opening his door, the former police officer walked over to his desk, retrieved an old brittle piece of German letterhead stationery, and then penned a letter to the commanding officer of Sachsenhausen camp. And stated that Heinrich Beck was an upstanding citizen and Jew and that he could not have possibly done anything wrong. He then requested all necessary steps be taken to release God's Father. He tossed the letter into the mailbox and wished God well. Weeks went by with no word, mention, no release. Then, after spending three and a half months within the confines of the hellacious concentration camp. Heinrich Beck was released with no explanation. God remembers he never said a word about that time in his life, what he experienced there. More pressing and important than retellings was solidifying the release of God's mother. Boldly and unflinchingly, Heinrich marched onto the grounds of the assembly camp and demanded the release of his wife. If they released a Jew, then they have to release the Christian. Before no time, or what felt like an eternity, the pair were back at their quaint apartment, and God's Father returned to work explaining his absence to his boss, I haven't been to work because I've been in a concentration camp. His mother and father had narrowly escaped the fate that so many of their loved ones had been trapped within. Heinrich and Hedwig were another two lives that were saved by God. During his mother and father's incarceration, Other issues had also threatened the German resistance of the Chaluzi. But in this instance, it would be complications of timing and economics. Although they had acquired an excess of currency from Nathan Schwab, that currency only had value while the Nazi regime was in power. If the war were to end quicker than they had anticipated, all of the great fortune that they had accumulated would be rendered void and all of the supplies or all of the souls that could have been ushered out would no longer stand as viable options. On the other hand, buying too much would appear suspicious and the borders of Germany could result in imprisonment or even death. It was a constant limbo with time a back and forth of should we or shouldn't we who would make the decision to spend their abundance on supplies to live out their days or who would make the decision to invest the money in escaping the war-torn country altogether surprisingly this decision would not be made by god or to any other members of the Chaluzi. Rather, time would run out for any decision other than to choose dying or coming quietly with the German Gestapo. connection to the Chukchulusi that had helped aid in information and some escapes to Switzerland informed the group of an underground Jew within Berlin who went by the name of Lustig. This unknown Jew dealt in jewelry and other coveted items that had great value during and after wartime. Skeptical but also well aware of the stability of having items with monetary longevity, the group asked the acquaintance to make arrangements for them to all meet the unknown Lustig. The skeptical feeling God had was well warranted. Lustig was one of Stella Goldschlag's stalking partners. In the eyes of a Jew snatcher, The Chug Chaluzi would certainly fetch a high price for their capture, being such a large group of both full Jews and Mischlings. The Gestapo twisted, contorted, and tortured the acquaintance for information. And who else but the Mischling courier to Switzerland would pacify them? They came through a bathroom window of the ground floor apartment and kept their weapons pointed. At four in the morning, as we and God awoke, they were surrounded. Stella's other henchman, Rolf, had accompanied the Gestapo to cement the delivery of the Jews. Ultimately, there was no struggle, since any type of outward physical resistance would have surely ended in bloodshed. Instead, they slowly carried their bodies with the Nazi group. As one of the officers sneeringly said, Do you really think there's a future for your Zionism? At a time when most would only breathe words and pleadings of compliance, God retorted, I was thinking about your future. How are things going to look for you a few months down the road? They were each placed in solitary confinement, each made to sign their own death sentences. God explains the twisted practice of signing off on your own murder was part of the treacherous methods of the Gestapo, wherein the victim was forced to give up their resistance and their selves. God was left to his thoughts within the confines of solitary, an abrupt halt to a life that for months and months had been rapidly accelerating. Those thoughts soon turned to despair as God imagined how he would be mutilated and maimed, what questions the Gestapo might ask, and admittingly, the most important topic Heavy on his mind was the fate of Zui. The officers had made certain their brutal methods of persuasion on Zui would be audible to God, plunging his despair to a new and unbearable depth. While in the throes of this descent, Zui convinced a Gestapo guard to deliver something to God. Something that God admitted later gave him the courage to continue. As the guard approached God, his hand unfurled to display a folded, wrinkled handkerchief. Inside the folds of linen was no letter or a written message of any kind, but a single lock of Zui's hair. Luckily, This gesture calmed God, reminding him he was not alone, and it was only feet away, through concrete walls of a holding cell, that one of the many reasons for him to hold on, was loving him more than ever. They would be held for weeks, eventually joined by other prisoners, and by happenstance, God would be interrogated by high-ranking Nazi officer Erich Moller, or as he had become infamously labeled, the Gestapo murderer. While all those unfortunate enough to be in his presence saw a ferocious Nazi, ready to take extreme measures of coercion for what information he sought out, shockingly, God recognized him as the owner of a tobacco kiosk he and his sister used to deliver cigarettes to. God cunningly used this information to his advantage and managed to exit the interrogation room unscathed, hand in hand with fate once again, a mythic entwinement that thankfully lasted through to April 21st, 1945. For weeks now, it was obvious that the war had come bombastically and aggressively to the Nazi doorstep of Berlin, as the Red Army forced their way toward the city to put an end to Hitler and his regime. As God noticed earlier, deportations had ceased Trains, neither leaving nor returning to the station, signaled to him that they were no longer filling death camps or ghettos. He was relieved he would be spared enduring that experience, but eerily pensive over what would happen to the remaining Jews in Berlin. As God and his cellmate began to eat from a food parcel, his mother had delivered, the moment was crushed by an allied bomb that fell onto the pavilion they were being held under. Although the bomb had failed to detonate, the damage done was still severe, ripping through the stone ceilings and burying the cellmate and God under layers of debris. He managed to acquire a small pocket of air from which to breathe. But just as he began to comprehend what had happened in his current situation, a pipe within the rubble burst and began filling his life-giving pocket with a shallow sea from which to drown. During his struggle to preserve airflow, the commanding officer of the camp arrived learning of God's situation and quickly offering whoever gets him out alive can leave the camp with their family. During his interrogation sessions with multiple high-ranking Nazi officials, God had thought nimbly on his feet and convinced his captors of his high level of international importance. The officer bought it and could not let such a high-profile prisoner die without giving vital information first. Eventually, a Hungarian Jew raised his hand and volunteered. He freed God with all of his appendages intact. As he ascended the stairs to the top of the assembly camp, he soon succumbed to the overwhelming gravity and pain of the situation, slipping into unconsciousness and waking later to bullets and bombs right outside the window of the infirmary. While he grappled with the pain, God learned that the Gestapo murderer, Eric Moller had ordered the entire assembly camp to be liquidated to the closest killing center. As bombs rained down, workers in the infirmary carried God on a stretcher to a larger room of safety, upon which he noticed a shadowy figure in the corner of the detritus-filled room. It was Zui, battered and starved, but Zui all the same. News of releases had spread like wildfire. Most all prisoners of the camp had been set free. Even God's sister and the Lowenstein family had been captured and released from the assembly camp. The two boys awaited their fate, happy to be together again, when the camp commanding officer cleared the room to speak with them. He offered two pieces of parchment, but instead, of signed copies of their death sentences. They clutched their release papers. With no emotion, the officer turned and walked out of the room as the building deteriorated, leaving the cell door open. The following day would mark the final battle for Berlin. God and Zwi stayed stationed at the assembly ruins, unsure of what would await them on the infiltrated streets that continued to buzz with bullets and bombs. It was still a likely possibility that they could both be killed from either a Nazi soldier or a charging Soviet soldier. On April 24th, they heard voices mixed in with the hums of bullets, undoubtedly now within the confines of the shredded building. A figure soon passed through the entryway of the room. It was obvious he was a Russian soldier, looking wasted and shot up from days of fighting. Still unsure of his intentions or how he might treat them, God was shocked when the soldier reached into his pocket, pulled out a note, and spoke to them in broken Yiddish. Is there someone named God Beck here? The emaciated and weary hand of the small German boy lifted into the air, as if manipulated by collie strings, announcing, I am Gabbek, the Soviet soldier, wide-eyed and worn, spoke a last sentence of Yiddish to the tired boys. Brothers, you are free. Though repairing the social fabric, economic stability and morality of Germany would take years. God was, for now, free from the chains of the Nazi regime. So impressed by his sly intellect and situational adaptability, the Soviet Union named him its country's first representative for Jewish affairs. At just 22 years of age, But rather than pursue this endeavor on behalf of a country of which he greatly doubted their true intentions, God trekked through war-torn Germany on behalf of the Hekeloots, gathering refugees and displaced persons to help them complete their Aliyah, an honor he himself had not yet completed. Along with Zui and his family. God finished what he had originally started at 16 years old, setting out for Israel. He flourished and processed the immensity of how his life had played out, noticing early the importance of what he had lived through as well as its preservation in history. He began a career sharing his story teaching Nazi-era children how such an event as the Holocaust is possible. Ultimately, although the greatest struggle for his life had occurred in Berlin, it would also be the city God would return to in 1979 to live out the rest of his life. He would continue to advocate for not only Jewish individuals in such positions as director of the Jewish Adult Education Center but also for the human race. He and Zwei would not remain forever entwined romantically, but the friendship that endured the siege of Berlin by way of bullets and bombs could not be broken even by time. God met his lifelong partner, Julius Laufer, shortly before returning to Berlin, and the two stayed steadfast till the ends of their lives. Godbeck died in June of 2012 in the same city that tried to kill him over 70 years before. And seeing as though living Any such way other than optimistically was out of the question. We can all assume he left this world walking in that same light. Perhaps never really knowing how many people he helped and saved and changed. Root and Branch is produced, written, and researched by me, Caleb Franklin. Music and sound design by Benjamin Dunn. And artistic direction by Lindsey Franklin. Stay tuned to hear why remembering the events of the Holocaust is so important today and every other day, as well as how root and branch We'll use an ancient memory technique to help listeners commit survivor stories to their memory. It's for the first time I've come to the first space of my palace at night. The fires are burning brighter than ever and a thick black smog is twisting its way skyward. The deadly light of the fire in the night, furnaces fueled by blood. I pull my eyes from the blackened vastness to see shadows in planning, shadows in wait. The small blonde boy is among them. No features are needed other than the stature of his silhouette. As he plans amongst his partners, an insidious blotch of crimson gallops onto the scene. Her steed is a giant Jewish star of David, yet adorned only with mine diamonds dyed in blood. A partner menacingly laughs, shooting false light through dozens of standing shadows. As a stark warning, a message of death, the clock tower moves with no tick. But instead, each moment taken, is a life taken. Screams mark the passing of time, many and more. The unraveling to raveling, from falling to flying. These are no easy tasks. Time takes what it wants. Shadows soon vapor. Voids of light now burn bright from fires of folly and skin. But the small frame boy beckons. Allies from a world unseen ascend. Shadows ascend, prying and picking the lightless forms from the walls of time. There were more than a few shadows that met shape that day. What once stretched green and continuously, now is filled with bottomless craters, displaying jewels atop the void beneath. The fires push some of them down the slick sides. Other people are much too deprived to resist a gift of this size. Then a grotesque, Smiling creature, made of burnt belongings in a skin satchel, dances to every opened chasm. In each visit, he is given a coin for his betrayal. He is given a life that was not his own, not his body to give. As he creeps to the last crater of the field, He dives in, I follow. The depths place us beneath the pond's surface. The boy clutches a ring around his neck. His breath won't last and he knows it. Knives and fire, glass and cartons begin to pummel the pond surface. Their sounds are of screams, shattering glass, shot after shot. He had made it to the surface, but nothing was passing, and now nothing can be passed in. No crying would happen in water, so he smiles. Small blond boy come back as a child. Ushers in resolve, serenity, two yellow stars now one, a shadow family, a brilliantly blue star of David, a promise to protect, to deflect. Gracious for the time of his found breath, the onslaught of his memories surround and lift him. All at once, they break the black water wide open. Light passes light, which passes light. Light with such immensity, it illuminates each city street, each cattle car, each dark cave of refuge. Smog no longer smoldering, He has lit a way, perhaps the way. He offers courage where once there was cowardice. It was an ascent of mythical entwinement, light walking with light.